0: Thank you, you could take your Bibles, and we're going to be in Matthew 17 this morning. The first couple of verses there in Matthew 17, and so while you're turning there, just allow me to read a brief little story. This is a true story of a man, and he says, I was a man who truly had everything I ever wanted, a beautiful family, a lovely home, several successful business ventures, and respect in the community and church. And like the foolish man in the parable, Jesus told, my barns were full and overflowing, and I felt pretty good, and certainly didn't see any need for revival in my life. But God knew my true condition, and he loved me enough to do something about it. I attended an extended series of special revival services held at my church. Through the Bible teaching, God began to show me how blind and spiritually bankrupt I was. I was being confronted with truth from God's Word, and the Holy Spirit was convicting me. I found this very uncomfortable. In fact, when I had to go on a business trip for three days in the middle of the week, I was relieved. I thought I was going to get away from the Lord. But wouldn't you know... The Spirit of God went right along with me. Those were three miserable days of conviction. The next Sunday morning, the speaker shared the Bible story of Naaman, the commander-in-chief of the Syrian army. He was a wealthy leader who had it all together, except that he had leprosy. Naaman wanted to be healed, but he didn't know what to do. He didn't want to do it God's way. So he approached it the way that I would have. He loaded up 600 shekels of gold and 10 talents of silver and went down to buy his way out of his problem. Right in the middle of the story, God's Spirit said to me, you know, you're just like Naaman. You've got spiritual leprosy and you need to be healed. You can be restored, but you're going to have to do it my way. I realized that I was proud, rebellious, ungrateful, and unyielded. I fell on my knees and cried out to God as best I know how, asking what He wanted me to do. In my heart, I heard Him say, I want two things, submission and obedience. Those were two strange words to me, but I put myself at His mercy, confessed my sin, and repented. God slowly showed me that I was trying to hang on to all things, I was accumulating instead of trusting him to provide for us, he began to deal with me about my business and financial affairs, which resulted in freeing, radical change of values for my family. This is what one man's account was of a summit that attended his church. What I'd like us to do this morning is to look at another summit that took place in the first several verses of Matthew 17. Now by no means am I saying that what we experienced last week is like the Mount of Transfiguration. That would be blasphemous, right? But I cannot help but think that there are some parallels to these three men that followed Jesus up to a mountain, up to a summit, and experienced Jesus in a new and fresh way. And so what I would like us to do this morning is just to follow along and through this story and see some similarities. And then I'm of particular interest to what happens after this experience. And my hope is by the end of this message, we could consider a plan that we might move forward post-summit. So let's look now at Matthew 17, the first eight verses. And after six days... Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain for themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their face and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, and have no fear. Our Father, as we sit underneath the teaching here this morning, thank you for these words of how you called up a few of your fathers and you revealed yourself to them in a unique way and how they just bask in your glory there. And while none of us have experienced seeing your presence in all of its glory, we have gotten snippets or slices of it from now and then. And for many, I think, within Highland Crest, they experienced that over the last week. Now I pray that you would use this passage in the verses that follow to help us to learn of how to, well, remain there on the summit, to, to continue to allow your spirit to work in our life, bringing conviction of sins, revealing the value of honesty, of humility, goodness and of grace. Oh, Lord, use this passage today to speak and minister to me and to others. In Jesus' name, amen. All I want to do again this morning is just look at these verses one by one and see what the Lord would have to say to us. I just um, don't have an outline for you. I just want to kind of deliver more from the heart today. As we look here at Chapter 17, verse 1, it says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and listen to what it says, And he led them up a high mountain by themselves. This was Jesus' idea. It was his initiative to call out some of his followers and say, What I want you to do is come with me. Let's get away. Let's break the normal routine of your life. Because what I'd like to do is reveal myself more of who I am to you. And isn't there value in that, church family, to have a time where our normal routine is interrupted and just to seek the Lord? I think that is one of the values that comes from the summit is that our normal routine was interrupted. And we, we came virtually every night from 6 to 8. We brought our families and that, that meant we set our phones aside, we set our tablets aside, we weren't interested in so many of the other things of the world, we just said, God, we want to hear from you. And that positioned us to see the Lord more clearly, did it not? One of the greatest gifts that you give to me and to the staff is you give us an expense account for a conference. And often that breaks the routine for us. And we are able to go. Sometimes it's just the drive or the flight to that place where the Lord can work and and begin to reveal things in my life or develop more appreciation in my family or for the church family as well. You'll notice here in verse 1 that he led him up a high mountain. I think most believe that that is Mount Tabor. How many of you appreciate a good mountain? We don't have many of those here in Wisconsin. Uh, If the Lord wills, our family will be taking a road trip this week, and I'm hoping that we'll settle into the Rocky Mountains for a day or so and spend the night. There is something about being on the mountains, isn't there? I think what I appreciate about it is the perspective that you have. It provides clarity to life. I can remember several years ago when my brother lived in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I visited him during Thanksgiving, and he said, How about we, we go up the Sandia Mountains? And we'll, we'll look up there, and then we'll look down, and we'll hike down. And when, you, when we went all the way up to the top of those mountains, we looked down at Albuquerque. And when you are in Albuquerque, everything seems so big and large. But when you are up on the mountain, everything seems so minuscule and small. And you can't even make things out there so small. And so there is value again to interrupting our schedules to getting perspective in life. And I suspect that for many of you, whether you viewed online or whether you viewed in person, you had this perspective-changing thing that took place for you. It says here in verse 2, And he, that is Jesus, he was transfigured before them. That is, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Now, the word transfigured in the Greek language is the word metamorpho. You know what word we use for that is metamorphosis. And often we think of a caterpillar that changes him to a butterfly. So while Jesus is there, his appearance changes right before their eyes, Now the scripture tells us, say in Philippians 2 verse 7, that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. That is, he left his glory there in the heaven and came down and took the skin of manna. At this moment, there on the mountain, these disciples were able to see Jesus in his glory. And it left such an impression on Peter, one of the disciples there that day, that he would write later in 2 Peter 1, verse 6, that we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So they had gotten away up on the mountain, up on their summit, and they were now seeing Jesus more clearly. They were seeing Jesus in a way that well they hadn't seen before, they were seeing Jesus in a way that likely they would see him again post-resurrection. And for one of them, John, they would see him, he would see Jesus like this again in the book of Revelation. And then we read here in verse 3, And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Now, why Moses and Elijah? Why not Abraham? Why not Joseph? Why not David or Solomon or Jeremiah? Why these two men? Well, I think if we think through this, we understand that these two men represented two forms of literature in the Old Testament. Moses represents the law. In fact, a lot of times, even in the New Testament, the law is referred to as the law of Moses, Right? And Elijah, of all the prophets, is the most esteemed one. He, too, is referenced in the New Testament. So what you have here is a meeting between Moses, Elijah, and Jesus himself. Now let us just pause here and let's get a little bit more out of verse 3. I think there's some great encouragement that comes to us from verse 3. One, please notice that they recognize Moses and Elijah. My suspicion is that there was not name tags on that day. Pictures or portraits were not developed at this time. One might ask the question, do you think that we will recognize our loved ones in heaven? Well, clearly from verse 3, the answer to that is a resounding yes. Yes. One day, a person asked Charles Spurgeon, the famous Baptist preacher, do you think we will recognize one another in heaven? And he said, in only the way that he could, do you think we'll be more stupid in heaven? Of course we'll be able to recognize people. Now, my guess is there wasn't even introductions. Hey, my name is Peter. Uh, This is James and John. and, And who are you? In our family devotion last night, which often unpacks invaluable insights uh, to passages. The boy said, you know, I imagine Moses was up there with his tablets, and and he's revealing who he is. And when it came to Elijah, he was probably talking smack, you know, and and letting people know, hey, fishermen boys, where's your fish? You know, he was talking to them, because that's what we see of Elijah. But nonetheless, they were recognized. And it also says here in verse 3, that they were talking with Jesus. when you like to know what they were talking about? Well, fortunately for us, we don't have to guess because we find out in Luke chapter 9 what they were talking about. And the Bible says there that they were talking about what Jesus was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So as they were seeing Moses and Elijah and Jesus and they are visiting, you know, there are some people who are really uncomfortable in silence. Is that, is that anyone here? And if there's silence, they just have to start speaking. They have to say something. It could be something even stupid, but at least they're going to say something. I suspect Peter is like that because there is this dramatic scene and Peter's got to say something. So he does. We read about it here in verse 4. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord... It is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now Luke uh, shares an invaluable insight in Luke 9, verse 33, of the same story when he says of Peter that he did not know what he was saying. So it wasn't like he thought at all. He's like, man, this is wonderful. Uh, How about I, I, I build you a tent, I'll build you a tent, and I'll build you a tent. I think I want to pause, though, And look at what he says there in verse 4. The first sentence is really good. He says, Lord, it is good that we are here. The word good is, it's appropriate. It is fitting. I just want to thank you that you have taken us up on this summit and you have revealed more of your glory to us. It just feels like right now that I'm seeing all this, Life is falling into place. It's becoming more clear. The perspective that I've longed for, I now have. It is good. But it not only says that, but it says that it is good that we are here. And this this is a shared experience that's taking place here. And I think this is really helpful for us to see. That for these three men they appreciated not only seeing Jesus in all of his glory, but they appreciated having it as a shared experience. And for us, the summit was not just about God speaking to us, but we benefit, don't we, when we hear how God is working in other lives as well. And it is unifying to be able to say, we love you, John, we love you. And and that is what is taking place here. But it would seem back down to the statement that Peter made there in verse 4 that he is putting Jesus, Elijah, and Moses all on the same level. Now, it is never polite to interrupt a person unless you're God because that's what God does here in verse 5. Look at it again with me. It says, He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Peter, it's enough of your talking. I got to interrupt. Enough stupid stuff's coming out of your mouth. Let me just make a declaration right now. This right here is my son. Listen to him. Why was that so significant? Because you had Moses, the law of Moses, you had Elijah, the prophets. And what he is declaring to Peter, James, and John is listen to what Jesus says. Now we know that Jesus did not come to contradict the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. But there certainly were times, and we see him... Very specifically in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, where Jesus would say things like, you've heard it said, or the law says this, or the law and the prophets say this, but I say to you, and what God the Father is saying is, listen to Jesus. So often, the Peter, James, and John, they would listen to these law and the prophets and they would consider just the behavior. But Jesus came to address not just the behavior, but the heart. So he says, listen to them. And then in verse 6 it says, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. You see, their summit experience was not about them feeling better about themselves. Their summit experience was them feeling better about Jesus being on the throne of their lives, and that ought to be our summit experience as well. It says there in verse seven. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, "Rise and have no fear." Do you ever wonder what happened then after that? What happened after their summit experience of seeing Jesus in all His glory and saying, "It is good that we we have this shared experience here." What happens when they come down from that mountain? What happens when the summit is over? Well, can I skip down to verse 14 and let's read some of that? And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and, kneeling before him, said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. When the summit ends for them, there is immediately a family problem that confronts them. There's a dad who's having trouble with his son. How many of you have the King James translation? Okay, what does it say there when it says in verse 15? What does it say about the son? He is a lunatic. Now my guess, this is not the first time nor the last time, that a father has called his son a lunatic. but what does that word lunatic mean? It means moon. It means moonstruck. And what we see here is that this boy is having epileptic seizures that manifest itself in this son throwing himself into the fire and throwing himself into the water. Now, I've never had son that, with epileptic seizures, but I've had sons that have thrown themselves into the fire. I can think of several years ago when uh, my wife and her mom and sister went away on a shopping trip, and it was just me and at that time four little boys, and we went up north, and we had a a nice good fire going with four little boys. What possibly could go wrong with something like that? And uh, one of our boys, around four at that time, was running across and tripped and did a swan dive on the middle of that fire, and quickly grabbed him and pulled him off, and Fortunately, it was cold, he had a lot of clothes on, but it still didn't prevent us from going to the emergency room. And then that same boy, a couple years later, we were down at Devil's Lake in the Baraboo area, and uh, looked down myself, and there he's doing uh, the dead man's float, you know, right next to us, and pull him up again, and he's, he is fine, almost today, I mean, he's still got a little confusion in, that he deals with, but for the most part, he is doing well, uh, But this was more serious than that. This was a type of sickness that we find out that was actually induced by demonic activity. Now, loved ones, we ought not to see that every time we have a cold or the flu, that the devil triggered that. But in this case, it's actually what did take place. It says there in verse 16, And I brought him to your disciples, and he could not heal him. Verse 17, and Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Verse 18, and Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out to him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why couldn't we cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you... Have faith like a grain of mustard seed. You will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So what happens after the summit? They are immediately confronted with a family crisis. Not only that, but failure, as their friends are unable to cast out this demon. They lack the faith to do it. But in the midst of that, Jesus works. What I'd like to do in the remaining time that I have with you is just to think a little bit more about the summit that we just went through. Because of some of the sickness that went around, and it also affected my family, uh, we didn't really process it as a church. Rather, we went back to our living room on one night, and I said to the Melody and the boys, Boys, how did God work in your life during the summit? And, and I just listened to some of the answers. But one of my boys said something that, that really rung out to me. And he said, Chad, he said, Dad, actually. <laughs> um, you know what it reminded me of? He said, of youth camp. He said, it's like, you know, you go every, every night to a service, and there's great preaching, there's, there's wonderful music, and you get all excited but there is something and I don't know what you call it but youth camp syndrome or something where you can get all excited for one week and then the second week it tails off and then the third week it tails off and before too long it's like that that week never even happened. And boy that that really stuck with me. And I thought to myself and then just began to pray, God, what would you have us to do for the next steps? It's a tremendous investment of time and resources for Life Action to come, but it can't be more than just a, like a, a camp where things just fade in a few weeks later. So as I was praying through this and praying even during the Life Action Week, what would you have us to do for the next step? I also began to think about how the summit ended. And it certainly didn't end the way that I had planned, where, where many people got sick. But I have walked with the Lord long enough, I think, to know that when things don't work out as I planned, God has a better plan. And I can't help but wonder if God's plan would not be just to extend the summit. Not so much to have the red team come back with all their um, vehicles and all those people, but what if we decided as a church family, eight days wasn't enough for us to seek personal revival. What if we said, let's take a summer and let's focus on God as individuals, as families, and as a church where we all are seeking the revived life. What was it that changed during that Life Action Week? Well, we allowed something new into our life, didn't we? I'm not suggesting that we go back and we have services every night. But is there some things that need to move away from our life and some things need to be entered into? I think so. Life Action provides a little magazine for churches that they go to. And they ask them to consider the next steps because what they don't want is a moment Rather, they want a movement. And one of their suggestions is to take the Life Action Summit that they have in printed form and have a church family work through it entirely. And so what you have here is actually an older edition of a book called Seeking Him. The subtitle is Experiencing the Joy of Personal Revival. And what the people of Life Action have done is over the years has compiled it into written form. And so instead of hearing a message on humility that lasts for about 35 minutes, you spend a whole week studying the topic of humility. And we've heard it referenced today about how helpful those little worksheets are that sometimes they would say, turn the page here and you can look over this worksheet. Maybe not exactly those worksheets, but similar worksheets are actually contained in this workbook. And this workbook and can I, just be, can I just open the confession and honesty part already, is I tell you this, I hate workbooks. Anyone else identify with that? Can we, can we all say that together At a count of three? I hate workbooks. It combines the two things, like reading and writing, right? <laughs> but you know what? If it means seeking God and a revived life, I'm willing to do a workbook. So this will take the process. And you know what? A lot of our people in this church have already gone through this, haven't they? My wife has gone through it a few times, and she can testify to a personal revived life. So let me just, let me give you three different ways that we can do this. And you think through this with me, okay? The first is this, Individually. My appeal to you, either viewing online or here in person, is us just to to make a plan to say, let's commit through the summer of seeking the Lord together. Let's purpose in our heart that we want to revive life. So individually, each of you get your own book. Now, I think in our congregation, uh, you could separate us in two different groups. There's one that our technology is, is very comfortable for you. And within 90 seconds, you could be on Amazon. You have my permission to do that right now if you want. And you could look up Seeking Him, Experiencing the Joy of the Personal Revival. And you could order that and have it sent to your home by tomorrow or at least Tuesday. Feel free to do that. I will tell you, this is an older edition. The new edition has, is more brown. It's still on the mountains. And it's still the same material. We had about 18 copies of these in reserves in our church. So I got a copy of these. I told you there's one, one group of people in our church that are tech-savvy, but there's another group that is not, and that's okay. So I've got 18 copies of these. There's some on the back table back there. If you would like, on your way out, you can grab a copy, and you can, you can begin your work on it. I think they're about 18 bucks, okay? So the first thing is to do it individually. The second way we can do this is actually groups. And we already have small groups that are meeting. We have Sunday school classes that are meeting. And what I'm not going to do is tell every teacher what to do and say I'm imposing my will and saying you must do this. But perhaps as a class you consider, hey, why don't we do this throughout the summer? My suspicion is if you're a teacher, it's actually going to make it a lot easier for you because the material is going to run itself. And you will experience levels of transparency, perhaps that your class has never experienced before. So there's small groups, or Sunday school. But you know what else I have found that take place here at Highland Crest? Is a lot of times there's these organic groups that just sort of pop up. There are groups that I don't even know about meeting, but they meet. And, and as a group, you could say, you know what? Let us go through this together. Sometimes there's group chats that form. And maybe there's a group of men or a group of women that say, hey, how about we go through this together? And the of us here in Wisconsin will take vacations. Here's the wonderful thing about this. You can take this with you. you, can, you can... So I said there's three ways we can do this individually. We can do this through small groups. And then I want to say corporately as well. That our sermon series throughout the summer would just dovetail into each one of these themes. So I think the first chunk that is taken, it's actually chapter two of this book, would be Humility. Roman, I think you're preaching next Sunday. My appeal to you is to cover humility. (laughs) I believe Al's preaching the next Sunday, and I'm going to ask him to take honesty because that's the next theme. And so you might say to yourself, well, Chad, we've already heard some of these themes. My guess is if you've been in the church for a while, we just need to hear them over and over and over again. Amen? So that's what I'd like you to do, Church. Individually, would you be willing to take this on? As a group, maybe your Sunday school class, as a small group, would you be willing to, to take this on? And then as a let us take this on together. And let us set an agenda to say, let us seek the face of God together. Here's the reality. For the last few years, I've spent a lot of time praying about the purpose statement of our church prayed about the different values of our church. We've talked about strategy and setting goals of our church. But shouldn't we really be just seeking the face of God as a church? I just sense that this is what the Lord would have us to do. And here's something else that's a little exciting to me. Well, I wouldn't say that. I'd say I'm really excited about it. One, when things don't go the way I have planned, God often has a better plan in mind. So I'm just learning, you know what? He is up to something here at Highland Crest. So let's each of us do our part and seek him. But here's the second truth that I think you found to be true and you've read in scriptures as well. It's when the Lord takes people through a pruning time of confession, of repentance, of dealing with these truths that we learn throughout life action. As we go through that process, when we come out on the other side, It's most often the most fruitful times of gospel ministry for us. Perhaps what the Lord is saying to us, as church, you need to do some pruning. You need to do some confessing. You need to be right with me because I've got some things for you on the other side. When I was in seminary, I I was, and I think I still am, I was just so eager, whatever opportunity you have for me, God, I want to do. When the missionary would come to chapel, I'd say, listen, I'll I'll go on missions. When a guy from church planting would would speak, I'd be, I'll plant a church. God, whatever it is you want for me, I'll I'll do it. And, And there was a group of us that expressed interest in church planting at one time, and we actually formed a little group. And so we would have a prominent church planter in our denomination on campus. We would try to have that person speak to all the students that wanted to be there. One of the professors would order pizza and we would pack the room. And, and there, was a, there was a man that God had prominently used in our denomination. In fact, God had used him to lead what is called a church planting movement. Where churches were planted and they just began to spontaneously flourish throughout the nation of China. And we found out that he was going to be on campus. I mean, he is a celebrity among our denomination. If we had football cards or baseball cards. He would have had his own card. you would have been able to flip over the back and say, here are all the churches that God used to plant. He was that guy. We found out he was going to be on campus, and we asked if he would come and speak to our group. I'm, I'm not even going to mention his name. I'm not sure I'm supposed to. And as he, as he came, I found him to be, well, unimpressive, lacked charisma, but he, but he got up, and he just shared truth with us. He was the type of guy that was like, never wasted a word. And, and just words soaked in humility. I don't remember anything else this guy said but one statement. And it's, it's been burned in my mind ever since. And I think I want to end with this. Is that God does not reproduce mediocrity. And I don't want to be mediocre. And I don't think you want to be mediocre either. And I think God is doing something here in our church, and I think this is an opportune time for us to seize this moment and let's say, let's seek revival together. And let's just see what the Lord would do. So here's your application today. Ready? I'm, I'm kind of learning from life action here. Before you leave today, tell someone what you're going to do about this message. And I would say to you that are viewing online, in the next 30 minutes, text someone what you're going to do about this message. If this plan is not the best for you, and you know what, we're starting this new member class, um, rather the new believer class, it might be overwhelming to do a a new believer book and a seeking him book. So I would say, choose the new believer book and get to the seeking him book at a later time. I'd rather have you do one of those really good than not do two of them. If you're already doing a study that the Lord is working in your life, continue to do that. But here is a plan for us, and I just ask you to consider it. Let us not settle for being lukewarm. Let us not settle for mediocrity. Let us seek Him together. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the, the work that you're doing. I thank you for the testimonies that were shared of people experiencing freedom from unforgiveness, people that were just kind of going about their routines and that routine was interrupted. And now um, they're, they're, they just have a better perspective on what Jesus is, who Jesus is and what he is doing in our lives. Lord, I, I thank you for this drawing that you are, are doing here in my life and I think in many others in this life. And I pray, Father, for you to, to bring about revival. In us. And we know that it's not about a ministry, but it's about you. So you are the one that we want to glorify. You are the one that we want to pursue. And Father, it's easy for us to begin something, but it's difficult in the, in the middle of that to finish it. So I would pray that you would not only enable us to begin this study, but to see it through. And live our own lives and say, revive me. Help me to be the one that experiences revival. Use me to be able to share the gospel with others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.